0: Amen. Church, would you remain standing with me as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13-17. through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institu- institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. May the Lord bless the reading of his word
1: amen you may be seated so we return this morning to our study of mark's gospel specifically his record of the events of the 11th day of nissan in the year 30 a.d now mark dedicates two and a half of the 16 chapters in his gospel to this tuesday of holy week in three short days jesus will be dead so it's a critical time It's going to be a day filled with conflict and instruction. An opportunity for Jesus to put an exclamation point on the last three years of teaching with the disciples while at the same time making clear to them just how much control he has over this entire situation. Jesus is not swept up in some type of populist movement. Things haven't gotten out of control. Everything is happening exactly as Jesus has said it would. So we left our time together on the last Lord's Day with a small representative group of the Sanhedrin the Jewish Supreme Court, this small delegation standing there in the temple complex looking like fools and cowards. It all began as they approached Jesus. They demanded to know, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right to teach and heal, to chase people out of this temple? Now, they weren't coming looking for real answers. What they had hoped was to catch Jesus in open blasphemy. And it would have been just easy enough for Jesus to answer, I am the son of God all authority is in me by nature or perhaps i am the christ the son of man and all authority has been given to me but instead he wouldn't answer their question at all he would force them to answer it themselves so he asked them about his forerunner about john the baptist he said did his ministry did his baptism did it come from heaven or did it come from man these men couldn't very well confess that john had come from god To do this would be to admit that Jesus was who he said he was, that he is the Christ. And had they admitted this, the crowd would have surely asked, then why don't you believe in him? But at the same time, they couldn't say that John came from man because the crowd knew that he was, in fact, a prophet from God. And to say that would mean stoning. And so they decided they were going to live to fight another day. Rather than admitting defeat, rather than conceding the war, rather than even telling the truth, they answered with the simple, we don't know. We don't know. It's a blatant lie, they knew. They knew who John was, they knew who Jesus was. But it's with this tension remaining in the air. These men desperately seeking to destroy Jesus and at the same time knowing they can't just snatch him up in broad daylight in the middle of this great crowd. It's with this tension hanging in the air that Jesus begins to speak to them in parables. Now Mark recorded for us just one of these parables. He tells a story about a rich man. This man comes and he buys a plot of land. He invests the time and the money to set up a proper vineyard there. And then in order to go back home to his home country, he entrusts care of it, stewardship of it to some tenant farmers. He leases it out to them. They're going to be allowed to keep a portion of the produce, but they're going to return the yield to him as the master of the vineyard. So when the time comes, some years later, the time of the first harvest, the man sends his servant to collect that which is rightfully his. But instead of receiving him and paying what is due, these men mistreat the servants, beating them, hitting some of them on the head, treating them shamefully, even killing some of them. But then this master, this owner of the vineyard, he does something inexplicable. He sends his beloved son. He says, Surely they will respect my son. But instead, when these wicked tenants looked up, they saw the man's son coming. They said, Look, here comes the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and then his inheritance will be ours. They did exactly as they wished. They grabbed the man's son, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So Jesus asks, What will the owner of the vineyard do? to these men. they see, this entire story had been about these men standing in front of Jesus, the religious establishment. These are the ones that God had entrusted care of his people. They were the tenants, they didn't own anything. They had been called by God to work for, to build up and to protect his people, to help them to be as fruitful as possible for the sake of his glory. And yet instead they laid burdens upon these people, hindering them in their growth and refusing to give God the glory that only he is due. So God with great patience would send his servants, his messengers, his prophets. They would mistreat them, treat them shamefully, beating them, killing many of them. And now God's son stood before them. But they had already made up their minds. They would not receive him. They would not honor God. They were determined they were going to kill Jesus. And so when Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What he's really asking is, what will God do to you? The men rightfully answer and Matthew puts it in very succinct words. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. These men were right. The day would come when God's patience would run out. He would return. He would destroy these wicked tenants, casting them into utter darkness and entrusting the care of his people to other faithful men. And yet to make clear that God's kingdom never loses to make clear that even in their rebellion, even in their sin, even in their violence and the rejection of God's own son, to make clear that God always wins. Jesus says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. You cast Jesus Christ aside like a stone like an unwanted thing, and yet what you find in the end is that in God's sovereignty, in his providential care, that even in your violence, even in your sin, even in your rebellion, you're only serving to further God's purposes. It is all happening just as he has determined before the beginning of time. You cast his son away, and yet you find that he is the very cornerstone, the foundation. He sets all the lines and all the angles, the whole structure held together in Jesus Christ. Again, God does not lose, ever, so these men are left standing there, looking like absolute cowards and fools. They would have arrested Jesus on the spot, but they knew that they couldn't. Because both they and the crowd knew that Jesus had been speaking about them. And so, and so driven by fear. These men are always driven by fear. So driven by fear, they turned and left him. We return this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. I invite you to stand to your feet, please. We'll pick up in the 13th verse. This is the word of God. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we do not want to read our own desires and our own thoughts into your holy word. We desire by the working of your Holy Spirit to have our hearts and our minds illuminated. We want to have the mind of Christ. We want your word to inform our life, our thoughts, our belief, our actions. Allow us to do that now. Help us to rightly hear, rightly believe, Rightly live in light of your word. Preaching your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So verse 13, and they. Who are the they? Surely this is the they that we just read about in verse 12. That representative group from the Sanhedrin. Surely they, after their encounter with Jesus, had gone back to the full council and told them how badly it had gone. Now, had they changed their mind? Had they determined to leave Jesus alone? Nope. Because they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, I've confessed to you before that it's easy for me, it's easy for us to see all these different groups that are in opposition to Jesus as just one big amalgamation. It's just the league of bad guys over here, all facing against Jesus. But what we will find as we drill down is that there's great difference in these groups. There's some areas in which these groups are much more different than they are alike we see this with these two the pharisees and the herodians the pharisees were a group of religious leaders they had dedicated their lives to becoming experts in the law of god and the traditions of men whereas the herodians they were a political faction these men had cast their votes they had placed their allegiance behind herod specifically herod antipas that joke of a king up in the north that had taken the life of john the baptist so the pharisees those that were concerned with religious matters with turning the hearts of people back to the law of God, they would have wished for the Messiah to come that he could rid Israel of Rome. They saw Rome as a blight on this nation, this place that had promised to God's people by him. Whereas the Herodians, because they determined that it was in Israel's best interest for Herod and his sons to be in positions of power, and because Herod was a puppet uh, at the hands of Rome, they were forced to cast their allegiance to the empire. They were forced to pledge allegiance to the emperor. And so both in terms of ultimate goal and in the process, the way they just thought about the nation as a whole, these groups couldn't have been much more different. One religious and one political, and yet they found one point of common interest. That was the death of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was a threat. Dear friend, Jesus Christ remains a threat today. There's no room for indifference with Jesus. He will either be Lord of your life or he will be the threat to the little kingdom that you seek to build. And that was the case with these men. We saw it all the way back in the third chapter of Mark's gospel. It was there that Jesus was in the synagogue on the the Sabbath day and he had healed the man with the withered hand. You remember the Pharisees went out and they took counsel with the Herodians determining how they could destroy him. These men so disliked each other They had completely different goals for the nation as a whole. They were unified around their hatred for Jesus Christ. Is there any more pitiful group in all the world than groups that gather together, that bunch together, groups you know don't like each other, and yet they're willing to come together based on resentment and hatred of another? And yet that's where they found themselves. And now they're back, this time having been sent by the Sanhedrin. Mark tells us to trap him. Agrao is the word in Greek. It can have a, a connotation of hunting, like setting a trap, like enticing your prey, like trying to lure someone in so that you can snatch them up and take their life. Luke seems to speak about this with even more plainness. He says, Luke 20:20, 20, 20, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. You see, the Sanhedrin knew that they didn't have the right to take the life of Jesus. So they had to make this into a political issue. They had to get him trapped in something that they could accuse him of before the governor, before Pilate. They knew that even Jewish law was not going to be enough to demand the life of Jesus. And so they were attempting to trap him, to lure him, to entice him into saying something politically incorrect that was going to get him in hot water. So verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. These dudes were laying it on thick. I can't believe they thought anybody was going to trust what they were saying was actually what was in their hearts. I imagine it had to eat them up to have to say these words. I imagine it in the back of their mind they kept reciting to each other, it will all be worth it when he's dead. Just say what you've got to say to get rid of him. Just play the part. So they come to him and they, can, they acknowledge him as teacher, rabbi. They come like students. As if they were coming truly seeking knowledge, seeking wisdom, seeking to be taught about how they were to respond to Rome. Teacher, we know that you are true and that you do not care about anyone's opinion. These men standing across from Jesus, there was nothing they cared about more than the opinions of men. They had dedicated their lives to building a reputation. Constantly worried about what men were saying about them, what men thought about them never willing to be truly honest with the people around them because they're always wondering, if I say the truth, if I act the truth, if I reveal to people who I truly am, what will the outcome be? Will my crowd shrink or will they grow? Will people boo me in the streets or will they pat me on the back? But this wasn't the case with Jesus. He could have cared less about the applause of men. He wasn't worried at all about the growing or shrinking crowds. He didn't care at all about the opinions of men. He didn't cower when powerful men came before him. And dear children, I would tell you this morning that apart from a life like this, apart from a life that does not care about the opinions of men, you will never be true. You will always be just like these men, reading the room, always keeping score, always trying to figure out, if I reveal to you who I truly am, if I stand transparent and exposed, how is that going to affect our relationship? Always wondering, what things are people thinking about me? How are people speaking about me? Always acting in ways that can help shape the way that you think of me. Shaping your opinions about me or my ministry or my life or my children or my whatever. You will never be true as long as you're consumed by the opinions of men. And I don't just speak about people pleasers. I speak about even those that thumb their noses at the crowd. Even those of us that are so arrogant that we want to do things just to show you how little we think about your opinion. On either extreme. Those people that try to show how little they think of the opinions of men and yet truly go home and are consumed by what men are thinking. Or those that are people pleasers trying to always keep everyone around them happy. In either case, when we're consumed by the opinions of men, we will always have on a a mask, a facade. It will always be an act. And not just the things we do, but the words that we say. Your words will never be true. You'll always be considering, more so than what am I about to say true, we'll be considering how will the words that I'm about to say affect the person standing across from me. Will they love me or will they hate me? Will they receive me or will they send me away? Will they come back to me for counsel next time? What's going to happen if I say these words that are true? Again, always keeping score. Always weighing the room. Always trying to figure out what is the best possible solution for me in this interaction. That's where these men found themselves. And yet Jesus was not like this at all. Jesus was consumed with the glory of God. He speaks about this directly in John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who has sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood at all. Dear friends, if your only concern is the glory of God, the God who is true. Your only concern is being honest and just and righteous and rightly reflecting this holy God to a fallen creation. Then you're not going to worry about the opinions of men. There will be no room for lies. There will be no need for lies. There will be no need for an act. I can be who I am. I can speak the truth to you. What you do with that is your problem. This is who Jesus was. But the men standing across from them, even as they uttered these words, this is not at all where their heart was. They say, for you are not swayed by the appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're rephrasing the same truth. You do not care about the opinions of men, nor are you influenced by their appearance. We know that you show no partiality is the way Luke records it. Jesus not only does not care about the opinions of the crowd, he does not worry about showing favor to powerful men. Rich, rich men, poor men, healthy men, sick men, religious men, irreligious men. Jesus doesn't cower to the powerful crowd, and he doesn't cast away the sorry crowd. In fact, he seems to show greater care and love and concern for those that are lowly, for those that are meek, for those that know that they have no self-righteousness and no place in the kingdom of God. These are those that Jesus seems to be the most drawn to. Yet he shows absolutely no favoritism no care for the appearances of men, the complete opposite of these men that are now standing before them. And now after they've said all of these things, again, I imagine they're just utterly nauseated by this point, but they're finally ready to set the trap. And so they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So these religious leaders are hoping to back Jesus into the same kind of corner that they found themselves in just moments ago. They ask him a yes or no question. They believe, okay, surely he can't wiggle out of this. It's a simple yes or no question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? From a purely earthly standpoint, this would appear to be a brilliant question if your goal is to trap Jesus. Here's the thing. The tax that's in question here, it's a poll tax or a head tax it's sometimes called. It's a tax on every individual within a certain area within a certain region. Now this tax, it was instituted in Judea and Samaria in the year 6 AD. It was at that time when Rome determined that they had to remove Herod the great's son, Archelaus. They removed him. He was a puppet king, a client king for Judea and Samaria. They removed him and began excising this tax from the people. If people would pay a tax directly to him. Now Herod's other sons, Herod Antipas and Herod Philip, those that ruled in the north and Galilee and Perea, the northeastern portions, they were allowed to continue collecting their own taxes. They regained control of their areas. But this more religious area here in the south, these people would pay this tax directly up to Rome. And so this would have been a particularly distasteful tax to God's people. Now most people, apart from the Herodians, they didn't like the Herods. They distrusted them, they disliked them because they were not real Jews. They didn't follow the Jewish law. And they were consistently bowing their knee to the Romans because they believed that was their course, that was their path to absolute power. But even more than they hated honoring the Herods, even more than they hated paying a tax to the Herods, they were truly disgusted by the thought of paying a tax all the way to Rome, directly to Caesar. Now, it wasn't about the amount of the money. The tax was only a denarius. A denarius is one day's wage for an average labor. It, it's nothing excessive. It's nothing over the top. The, the question wasn't the amount of the tax. It was the principle of the whole thing. Because every time these men had to pay this tax, they were reminded, we are not truly free. We serve under Rome. And so they hated this tax. It was a show of submission every time they had to pay it. That's why Luke records it like this, Luke twenty twenty two. 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? It's about more than the money. It's about tribute. It's about submission. It's about reminding themselves that, yes, we are under Rome. The idea of paying this tax, it was truly despicable, repulsive to them. And so we read in Acts five twenty-seven that right about the time the tax was passed in 6 AD, that there was a man called Judas of Galilee, that he had caused a great uprising over this tax and the census that they used to impose it. Now Josephus records some of what happened there. He tells us that Judas called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in the place of God. That was the issue. This man believed that it was an offense to God, that you were a coward to pay taxes to Rome because you should serve God and God only. You especially should not serve a king that is outside of God's people, a pagan king like this. That was a true abomination to this man and so he, he caused a great uprising. but of course Judas was killed and this, the fury of the thing was just squelched. But it, what it gave birth to was the zealot movement. Those men that sought to openly oppose Rome, oftentimes even taking the lives of Roman soldiers in the name of obedience to God. These zealots would eventually go on to lead a real deal uprising in the year 66 AD. In response to that uprising, Jerusalem would eventually be destroyed in the year 70 AD. So this little bitty tax, it's a big, big deal. It's not just a big deal, but it's a hot button topic. Even amongst Jesus' followers, you've got Matthew, a tax collector. You've got Simon, a zealot. Some people believe that Judas Iscariot, he was part of this group called the Sicarii. These were men with daggers that sought to take the lives of Romans whenever they could. So even amongst Jesus' apostles, there wouldn't have been absolute agreement about this poll tax. But in reality, the question is about a whole lot more than money. It's about a whole lot more than taxes. It's about allegiance. It's about submission. It's about religion. It's about freedom. It's about patriotism. All of this is at stake with this. Are the Jewish people, those that have been called and set apart by Yahweh, those who have been placed in this land that was promised to them by God, were they allowed to even pay a tax up the ladder to Rome? Was it an offense against God? Was it a sin? Aren't compatibility with Rome, excuse me, aren't allegiance to Rome and allegiance to God completely incompatible? Is it a sin? Do we pay the tax or do we not? So again, these men thought they had Jesus trapped because to them, if he said yes, it's allowed, pay the tax, then surely the zealots and anyone that was sympathetic with their rebellion would have immediately found themselves alienated from Jesus. They would have seen him as no different from the Herodians, all too willing to submit to Rome and to Caesar. How could this man be the Christ? How could he be the one ushering in the kingdom of God when he places himself under the emperor of Rome? On the contrast, if Jesus says no, You serve no king but God. You do not pay the tax. Then the Herodians and the Sadducees and others that had no problem with the tax, they would have been all too willing to turn him over to the governor. And then surely, because of this open rebellion, they would demand his life. Again, the religious establishment, they think that they've got Jesus trapped. This seems to be a no-win situation for him. Lose your life or lose your following. Is it lawful to pay the tax? Is it lawful to give the tribute or is it not? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, He said to them, why put me to the test? Jesus, of course, knows the hearts of men, but you do not have to be the Messiah to see what's happening here. You know that these men have not turned from their ways. You know that they have not repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. You know that they are not here seeking true and genuine counsel about how they are to respond to the Roman uh, rulers that have sway over them. We know exactly what this is. This is hypocrisy. The whole thing dripping with hypocrisy. And that's a word that we throw around pretty easy these days. People always calling each other hypocrites. People calling many within the church hypocrites. Having no understanding that the very basis for the Christian faith is the confession that we are sinners. It's turning to God and asking his forgiveness in the name of Christ Jesus. It's during our times of struggle and sin turning to him and asking him to strengthen us. Helping us to hate and flee from our sins. Dear friends, there is no hypocrisy in genuine Christian struggling. But these men, This was true hypocrisy, putting on a mask. They were play actors. They were presenting themselves as men that were righteous, that truly loved God and loved his law, when deep down there were men with heart heart of evil and room for nothing other than love of self. It was absolute hypocrisy, and Jesus knew it, and he had no problem calling it out. Matthew tells us that he says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? You can almost hear the exasperation in his voice. We're doing this again? When will you Nimrods learn? quit coming to me and putting me to the test. It didn't work out last time. It's not going to work out this time, but you've chosen it. So here we go. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, because Jesus was from the northern region of Galilee, he didn't have to pay this tax. In addition to this, he had no material wealth, didn't own land, didn't own livestock, didn't own money. They had a community purse that was Guarded by Judas who was stealing from it. And so we shouldn't be shocked that he didn't have a coin like a denarius. So he shouts out. We see his authority even in this. Someone give me a denarius. Verse 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So I like to picture someone in the crowd just flipping the coin up to him. And he grabs it. Jesus never misses. So he first try. (laughs) He grabs a denarius and he holds it face side up. And he points to it. And he says, whose image? Whose likeness is this found on this coin? And we begin to see another problem with the poll tax. You see, for day-to-day trade, everyday transactions, the people were allowed to use locally minted copper coins that didn't have any inscription or any face on them. But this tax, this poll tax that went directly to Caesar, it was meant to be paid with a silver coin that bore his likeness, that had been stamped with his image. And So Jesus asks, whose inscription is this? Of course, it's Caesar's. Now, Caesar is not a proper name. Caesar is the name of any emperor that came after Augustus. In this day, it was Tiberius Caesar. And so these coins would have been minted by his people bearing his image, his likeness. It was a show of absolute power and authority, even over the money that's in your pocket. But this would have been a problem to the Jewish people because they would remember the law of God. They'd remember that he said in Exodus, you shall make no... Carved image for yourself or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. For many, that's exactly what this coin represented. It was a thing made in the image, in the likeness of man. To them, they would have thought, surely this is a sin. Surely this is an offense to God. And so as Jesus stands there and he asks them, whose likeness is this? Icon is the word. It's a representative, a reflection, a thing that points to the real thing. It's a shadow of something that is greater, that it points to beyond it. It wasn't actually Caesar that's on that coin, but it's a thing that points to Caesar, an icon, an image, a reflection of who Caesar is there on that coin. He asks, whose is this? He also asks about the inscription. What does the coin say? Now historians tell us what the coin said. Coins minted like this, this type of denarius, it would have said upon it, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Or if you'd like, Tiberius Caesar, the son of God. On the flip side, it would have said, High priest. So what you've got here is Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus and your high priest. Starting to see why this was a problem? Truly, even this coin was an offense to the people of God. And yet here we find Jesus standing in the temple court, holding this coin up, asking what seems to be a pointless question because everybody knew the answer. Whose image is this and whose inscription is this on this coin that you use to pay the uh, poll tax? And everybody rightly answers... Caesars verse 17 then jesus said to them render to caesar the things that are caesar's That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Jesus says whose picture's on the coin? It's caesar's He's like a little kid that got a label maker for christmas He's putting his name and his face on everything if he likes the coin so much give it back to him pay the tax Like we don't need to overthink this I listened to many sermons this week as pastors tied, tied themselves in the knots trying to explain what jesus is saying here He's saying pay the tax The coin is his. You live in the region. There's benefits to living in the region. Pay the dude the tax. And this is fascinating because you remember the charge that was brought against Jesus when they brought him before Pilate. They drag him in there. And what do they say? Luke 23, 2. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's a lie. It's a blatant lie. They asked him, what do we do? He said, that's Caesar's. Give it to him. That coin's got his face on it. He loves this coin so much, he's asking for it back. The word render is apoditomai. It means to return something that was originally his. That was his coin in the first place. He's asked for it. He's demanded it. Pay the tax. But these people couldn't very well bring any real charges against Jesus, so they lied. They completely lied. Now, had Jesus stopped there, had he just said, pay the tax. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the religious leaders would have absolutely thought they had won. They would have expected the crowd to wander away. Again, how could this be the Christ if he places himself under a pagan man named Caesar? How can we believe that he is truly ushered in the kingdom of God while he's submitting to the kingdom of Rome? But he doesn't stop there. I do have to imagine if he didn't put a pregnant pause in there just to watch the dopey looks on these guys' faces. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We've got him. And to God, the things that are God's. And the people were mesmerized by him. They were amazed. They were blown away. They marveled. How does he do this? We spent hours coming up with this question that we knew no man could get out of, yet you walked right through our trap like it was nothing. You answered even the most difficult of questions with absolute brilliance and honesty and truth. They were amazed at what had happened, blown away. But what does it mean? It seems like we're talking about a whole lot more than taxes here, doesn't it? I feel like we've got to be talking about something a whole lot more than a denarius coin. So what's Jesus saying? He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The coin belongs to Caesar. The way you know the coin belongs to Caesar is because it bears his issue, his, his image. Bear to God, God the things that are God's. How do we know the things that belong to God? Is there anything that bears the image of God? You're already ahead of me. You know the answer. It is us. It is man, male and female. Scripture explicitly says this. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man's created in the image of God. We bear the image of God. Now, we don't know fully what that means. There are volumes upon volumes, literally thousands of years of men trying to really wrap their minds around what does it mean that we are made in the image of God. At very least, it means that we represent him, that we point to him, that we image him in his creation. In some way, it means that we exercise his dominion and his authority over this creation. But we know ultimately what this means is that we belong to him. He has made us and we bear his image. Give to God the things that are God's. You belong to God. This is it, isn't it? Those coins, they've been minted, and they bear the image of Caesar. They're Caesars. You have been made in the image of God. You belong to God. That's why the world is so desperate to deny any sense that there must be an ultimate creator out there. There must be a personal being that's responsible for our existence on this planet. They absolutely resist it because they know that they admit that God exists. If they give up on this lunacy that we're just the consequences of time, enough, enough time and chance. If they let loose of the lie that we evolved from other animals, then they're going to have to admit that we belong to the one who has created us. That everything in us, everything about us, everything we produce is owed to the God who has created us. And this is such an affront to our sensibilities. This is such a threat to our tiny little kingdoms. We won't won't accept it. We'll reject it. So much so that you find the average man out there, he would rather confess that he is of no more value, no more worth, no more purpose than a tadpole than to accept that he is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of and by the hand of the most magnificent being in all the universe. They would rather believe there's no purpose in this life, there's no direction in this life, there's no meaning in this life, than to admit that they came from an almighty God and to him they must answer. And so what they find is that very quickly this life seems to have no meaning. But scripture won't let us go there. From the very beginning it shows us that we, unlike any other part of creation, we were made in a very special way. We were made in the image of God. Imago Dei is the phrase in Latin. We're made to bear the image of God, an illumination to the world, an illustration to the world of who God is. But again, this is such an affront, such an attack to the sensibilities of man, to our desire for self determination, for our desire to believe that we're the kingdom, that we're the king of our own little kingdom the masters of our own universe. And so they reject it, perhaps subconsciously. They think, if I can just deny God's existence, if I can deny that I owe my life to anybody, then I only have to submit to whatever authorities are exercising power in front of me now. I will submit to a police officer because he can throw me in jail. I will submit to, I won't steal your car because you might kill me. The only authority I ever have to listen to or, or obey is the powerful authority, the one exercising authority and power standing right in front of me now. But there is no ultimate being. There is no sovereign God. There is no one that has created me. I don't bear anyone's image, and therefore I find myself free. That's the word they use, isn't it? I find myself free. And then again, before too long, you find that life has no meaning. That We're meant to find our meaning in our image-bearing nature of God. That our purpose is to reflect him, to honor him, to give to God what is due to God. And because they refuse to do this, pretty quickly they find that life has no meaning. And so we try to make up our own meaning. We bunch up in little groups based on race, based on career, based on experience, based on recreation. We begin to try and find our value based on how much money can we make? How many children can we raise? How many applause can we get from men? But it always falls short. We always find that there is no value there. There is no meaning there. And then man finds that there is no peace. There is no joy. There is no happiness. And they turn to the sciences of this world. They turn to psychologists who tell them, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that your parents were really bad. Your problem is you don't think highly enough of yourself. Instead of looking them in the eye and saying, dear friend, your problem is that you're not bearing the image of the one who has created you. You're not reflecting him as you are meant to. You have broken that image. You are alienated from him. And only in Christ Jesus will, will you be restored. Dear friends, I need you to hear me, and I need you to hear me very, very clearly. Psychology is destroying the minds of men and women all over this country. They're lying to them. Your problem is not that your daddy told you you were fat and stupid. Your problem is not the hand that you were dealt in life. Your problem is that your mommy didn't breastfeed you. None of those are the problem. The problem is that you are alienated from God above and you will never be right from him. You will never be restored to him apart from Jesus Christ. It is sin and nothing less that separates you from him. But this is where the world lands. Should we be, have any surprise then that they find no value in life? Because they tried to find value in all these other areas, they find life of no value. So it's nothing to them to abort a child, is it? If a child is nothing more than an advanced primate, than an ape of some sort, what does it mean? If the only value in life is whatever joy and happiness that it can bring us, then when a life is an inconvenience, why wouldn't you take it? Or when the doctor tells you that the child is going to go through a life of pain and suffering, why wouldn't you end it? It seems like an act of mercy. The same thing at the end of life, a 100-year-old woman. When this life is promised to stack up before her with more suffering than happiness, why wouldn't you end it? The life is of no value. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. Because we so separate and alienate ourselves from God, the one whose image we bear, the place we find our true value and purpose and meaning. That's where this world is. You wonder why the world looks the way that it looks? It's because they refuse to give to God the things that are God. They refuse to turn and trust in God. They hold their breath like petulant children. Instead of saying, I am precious. In Christ Jesus, I've been made in the image of God. If what scripture said is true, if every man, every woman, from their moment of conception to their very last breath, if they are made in the image of God, then there is nothing more precious. There is nothing more valuable. There is nothing to be more honored than human life. Every single human life. That's the answer. You want to end racism in this country? Get this right. It's not a political movement. It's not riots in the street. It doesn't matter who the president is. You point to men that all men are made in the image of Jesus Christ. He and he alone will restore what is broken. He and he alone will fix what has been separated. That's your answer. And all of this wrapped up in what Jesus is saying. Give to God what is God's. You belong to God. What about the lost? What about those that have seek to break free from this image? Are they too still in the image of God? See, there's there's one sense in which only the Christian may say that we are not our own, we are bought at a price, therefore we honor God in our bodies. There's there's a certain sense in which Jesus Christ says that those who trust in him, that through the knowledge of God, we are being crafted into the image of Christ. This is speaking to something different, something higher. This is talking about our glorious bodies. This is talking about being fitted for eternal life in heaven with God. But what about the non-believer? What about those that reject the existence of God altogether? Are they still in the image of God? Dear friends, I tell you, yes. What well, we find after the flood, after horrendous sin, the fall of man, don't think Noah's any better, he immediately got drunk and led around naked. So even in the midst of all of this sin, what is God saying in Genesis 9? He says, life is so precious to me that if any of you take innocent life, I will demand yours in return. Capital punishment. That is how precious life is, all human life to take a life is to fall under the sword so yes even for the non-believer even for those that rejected they themselves are made in the glorious image of god even they still hold on to that image it is broken it is marred it is scarred it is gnarly at times but dear friends that image remains so this is it this is what jesus is saying that coin bears the image of god, uh, of caesar give it back to caesar pay the tax And yet you must know that every single one of you bear the image of God. Give to God what is God's. You never give yourself over to a king, to a ruler, to an emperor, and you never give worship to a king or a ruler or an emperor. There is one God worthy of worship, and his name is Yahweh. You look to him. You trust in him. You worship him. That's the story of what Jesus is saying. Very well, but then what does that mean with regards to this tax? Have I just chased a wild rabbit here? Does this have nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about? I think it is. I think he's saying, look, I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I am the son of God, and I am here making clear to you that it is not treason for you to pay tribute to a, a pagan king. That was, the, that was the concern of the Jewish people. I mean, like the genuine questioner that was really worried about paying this tax. That was his concern. Am I committing treason? Am I sinning? Am I offending the only king of the universe first by paying tribute to this God that, this king that does not pay him his worship, does not pay him his due? Surely God is offended by this. So that's what they're asking. Is it lawful? Do we have God's permission to handle this coin and to pay this tax? And Jesus is saying, yes, it's fine. As a matter of fact, it's right and it's good. Pay the tax, but you must never forget to whom you truly belong. Turn to 1 Peter 2, if you would, please. This is the text that that David read for us at the beginning of our time together. I want to show you something here because I find myself... As we study through this Passion Week, I find myself drawn an awful lot to the writings of Peter. I think because he's there, and a lot of times I feel like he's giving us commentary in retrospect of some of the stuff that played out during this week. And so Peter is writing to to Christians, and, and Tiberius Caesar is dead, Nero is now the emperor, and if the Jewish the Jewish people under Tiberius Caesar, they had it like Disneyland compared to the way the Christians were gonna be treated under Nero. Things were bad, and they were getting worse. Christians were gonna be killed, fed to lions, burned as lampposts in the streetlights. They were, they were suffering at the hands of this madman, and so they surely had to have been wondering, okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Does that still apply now? With a man that is so actively persecuting the church an absolute raving lunatic demanding the lives of people based solely on our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Do we sh- pay, to, pay to this man what is due to him? Do we pay honor? Do we pay tribute? Do we subject ourselves to him? And so Peter is writing to a church just under great persecution and trial and struggle and surely demoralized and discouraged at this point. So First Peter, I read in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of his visitation and so he's, he's speaking again to believers right colossians 3 paul will talk about the way in which we are already hidden with christ we're, we're already in heaven our, our our citizenship is there and in a very real way we are already in heaven and yet we could fall for this temptation that while we know we are sojourners and, and strangers and travelers in this earth, we can fall for this belief that we can somehow completely disassociate ourselves, that we don't have to submit to any earthly authority, any king, any emperor, any ruler, because we serve God and God alone. And in addition to that, it can drive us to the point where we completely give no care to how we act, that we can act like a visitor to a hotel room just trashing the place or a businessman away on a conference acting like an absolute fool because I don't belong here. There's no consequences to the way I act. And what Peter is saying is No you're a stranger, you're a sojourner, you're a traveler, but the way you act matters. The way you conduct yourself matters. You see why though? Not just for their sake, for the sake of the people of the world, for the sake of those people that, re, that reject you and that spit upon you and that mistreat you. It's because of them that you act in a right way, that you obey, that you watch your conduct so that they may see something different. You're a You're adorning the gospel for them. You're making the gospel beautiful. You're representing God as image bearers. You're showing them that God's people are sober-minded. They're obedient. They're good and decent people with decent conduct. You see this. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Sounds an awful lot like a verse that we often refer to in this setting from Paul. Paul writes in Romans, Romans 13, he says, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. You see this. He's saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Far from being treasonous to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, it is right and it is good because you are honoring me when you honor the authority that I placed over you. As he would say in Daniel, there's no king that is on a throne that I have not placed there. There's no king that's been taken down that I've not taken down. We've seen this all throughout history. Even pagans, even some of the most vile and evil of kings, they have been placed in their positions of authority because God has made it so in his sovereignty. And no king that God has said will come down will be able to hold on to their power no matter what they do. God is absolutely sovereign. His providential plan is moving kings on their throne and he is tearing them down. This is why we, we, we think about with daniel how he's able to honor some of these kings that he has been placed under while at the same time keeping his allegiance to god this wasn't just the case in babylon it's the case in the united states and everywhere and it's not just the case with kings and emperors it's the case with presidents with governors with mayors with dog catchers with teachers with principals with crossing guards with all authorities that god has placed before you those are placed there by him to resist them to reject them to dishonor them is to dishonor god who has placed them before you all authorities He's not talking about just those authorities that are the most godly, just those authorities that claim the name of Jesus Christ, just those authorities that you have voted for. He's saying all authorities, all of them, have been placed there, and so you submit to them out of love and reverence to me. We're not like the world in this. We don't have to be moved by physical persuasion. We're never moved by fear. You don't have to exercise force over me to make me a good citizen because in the name of God Almighty, I submit to you because I submit to him. And this allows us then to submit to evil men. Well, we don't say this with our mouth, even while they're calling us to submit to things, we're constantly thinking in the back of our head, I submit to you not for your sake. I submit to you for the sake of God in heaven. I submit to you the glory of Christ. I submit to you so that those who are watching may come to Jesus Christ and see him as truly glorious. It's not about you at all. Your pride is off the table. Your wishes, your preferences, your political parties, all those things are off the table now because I serve the king who is above. But you must also see what he is not saying here. When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, what he's not saying is there's some things that are Caesar's, there's some things that are God's, and God doesn't stick his nose where it doesn't belong. He's also not saying there are two equal kingdoms, a kingdom of heaven and a kingdom of of, of man, and you've got to determine where you're going to go. No, he's saying it's the opposite of this, that you've got kingdoms here on earth, but superintending, sovereign, all-powerful over all the rest of it is the kingdom of God. And the king of that kingdom has said, you are going to submit to these earthly authorities that I've placed over you. It's the complete opposite of the way that the world thinks. So I want you to circle there in your Bibles, if you're a person that writes in your Bible, circle the word subject there. Be subject to human institutions for the sake of God. Circle that. what he's calling us to. This is more than just a tax. He goes on to say, honor to who honor is due. This is submission. This is obedience. This is following the laws of the land. While at the same time, knowing at all times that the one that sits before us, they're only there because God is on his throne and God is sovereign. That's why Jesus would say to Pilate, John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. At the same time, we know that governments, that emperors, that governors, that all the ruling authorities God has placed over us, he has placed them for our good. Remember when scripture tells us that God works all things for our good. But we see all the way back even in the beginning in his instructions to Adam to go and exercise dominion and authority over the world. And in addition to that, after the fall of man, as he institutes these various human authorities, these governmental agencies, he does that for our good. Now, I know there's all kinds of debate nowadays about how big government should be, how small it should be, what the scope should be, whether it should be any government at all. Dear friends, I'm telling you that government is a gift from God. It is an absolute common grace to make this world livable. You don't believe me? Go visit some of these failed states, some of these countries that are ruled by mob or by drug lords. You'll be very quick to thank God for the government that he's allowed us here. We see it to some degree in some of the states, some of the cities around this country right now as anarchy rules, as government refuses to do that which they've been put in place for. We see this. We see that government is a gift from God. He makes this life livable. It shows us a picture. It's a constant reminder that we do serve an ultimate authority. But even as we submit to them, it's a gift to keep proper order and to make make this world livable. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I had you circle submit. I'd ask you now to circle free because I need you to see that submit and freedom are not in opposition. It's the opposite. We can freely submit to the authorities that God has given us because we are free in Christ Jesus. We're completely free in him. We don't have to worry about the outcomes of elections. We don't have to worry about coups. We don't have to worry about all the laws of the land. We're gonna follow them, trusting that our God is in complete control, and we are free in Christ Jesus, and for his sake, we're gonna submit to the authorities that are in front of us. That's what it means to be free. I don't have to scratch and claw like the rest of this world. I don't have to sit up night, late at night wor- watching election returns. I don't have to bite my fingernails over who's going to be the next governor. I'm free from all that because in Christ Jesus, I know that he will come and the kingdoms of earth will be overtaken by the kingdoms of heaven. That's the freedom that we have in here. So that for his sake, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of the lost around that are watching, we honor those that need to be honored. We pay taxes to those that need to have taxes, but we fear and worship only God. That's what he's saying here. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. As sojourners, as travelers, we're not consumed by the things of this world, and yet we ought to be the best darn citizens you've ever seen. Dear friends, Christians ought to drive the speed limit. You ought to pay your taxes. You ought to follow the rules. You ought to be the best citizen this world has ever seen. You ought to be just like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, going, man, I wish I had a country full of people like this. They are more obedient They pay me more honor. They give me more respect than I could ever possibly do. It's almost like they don't care about me. It's almost like they're looking past me to some ultimate authority that's commanding them to obey me. And yet we must never forget that it is only God that we will honor. And we must never forget that when the time comes, it is God that we will obey. That's why this very same Peter, this Peter that stood in the temple complex, this Peter that wrote to these persecuted Christians, this same Peter would stand in front of this council and say, I must obey God rather than man. So that when the time comes, and it will come, but dear friends, if our posture is one of natural submission, if we're just natural, obedient, and good and decent people. Mow your lawn, pay your taxes, kiss your wife, salute the flag, do all the things that you're supposed to do as a decent human, as a decent American. Do those things so that when the time comes, when they push back, and they will push back, God has put them in a place so that they can reward those that do good and punish those that do bad. Hasn't He? But when the time comes when they get it backwards, and dear friends, they're going to get it backwards. There's times today in this country where they're getting it completely backwards. They're punishing those that do good. They're rewarding those that do bad. But even in the middle of this, we must be people with a posture of submission. Honor to honor is due. Paying our taxes. Respecting the authorities. Being submissive. Until the point comes that they cross the line. And we won't always know when the line is coming. You notice in Daniel, he allowed them to change his name, but not his diet. There's there's going to be times when we don't even know exactly what the line is. We don't exactly know when it's coming, but we know that it will come. And when that day comes, we find ourselves like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like Daniel. We say, no, we must honor God rather than man. We will not cease to pray. We will not cease to give him our worship. If you call us to cross a line that he's told us not to cross, we won't cross it. If you call us to not do something that He has clearly called us to do, we're going to do it. And then we're going to face the consequences. But again, we will do it when they look at us and they'll go, where did that come from? Because we're not a bunch of rebels. We're not a bunch of anarchists. We honor the authorities because we honor God. Because we respect and love God and we know that we will answer to God someday for the way in which we submit in this life. So that when the time comes that they cross the line, they'll step back and go, whoa, I have never seen that side of those people. But so many Christians, that's not the way they live. They run around like loudmouths. They grab the Christian banner and they go charging off into political fights. Because this was never about God. It was never about the honor of God. I'm talking about people that lose their mind because they've shut down the churches and they hadn't been in church for the 10 months since we've been back. I'm talking about people that go apoplectic when they find out that they've canceled prayer in school and they hadn't prayed with their children in years. Dear friends, that's not the point. It's not about you. It's not about your pride. It's not about your preference. It's not about your ways. It's not about your little kingdom. We're not trying to build the kingdom, the island of First Baptist Church of Crosby. We're trying to change the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. We want them to look at us and go, they're different. They don't just obey when the cop's sitting there watching. They don't just obey when the tax man shows up and demands what's his. These people seem to obey when nobody would ever know if they didn't. What's wrong with these people? We serve a king above. We honor those to whom honor is due. We pay taxes to those whose taxes is due. We obey those that we're called to obey. And then when the day comes, and I'm telling you, the day is coming. I know you're tired of me saying this, the day's coming. When they're going to come and they're going to try to rip your kids out of your house because of the things that you're teaching them, because of the things that are said from this pulpit, because you're constantly trying to deprogram them from the junk that's being poured into their heads at school. When CPS shows up at your house and they drag you away, what they better find in you is a people who honors God above everything else while at the same time obeys authority for the sake of their salvation. The very people that beat you with sticks and drag your children away in chains, what they ought to see in you is a desperate desire for them to know Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the purpose. It's not winning. It's not fighting for the sake of your name. It's not building your own little kingdom. And this is so different from the rest of the world. This is so different from many pastors. I understand this. I've heard from some of you that you wish I'd talk more about some of this stuff. You think the fight's already here. And so you feel like I'm being too passive when I don't talk about it. And I watched a clip to encourage myself. I watched a clip from Braveheart yesterday. (laughs) I'm no Braveheart. I don't no William Wallace, but you remember that scene as he's standing there with his men and the English are charging and they're snot coming out of the horse's noses and the men are gritting their teeth and they've got their swords and their spears out and William Wallace looks at his men and he says, hold, hold. It's not time yet. The time is coming. The time is coming. The tide has shifted, the winds have changed, the time is coming. I don't know whether it's gonna be within my lifetime, but it's certainly gonna be within my children's lifetime, when what we do in this place is illegal, when making absolute statements of truth based on the authority of God's word is gonna be absolutely unheard of. And a room like this will never be this full. We'll find many that will walk away, many that will wander away, but dear friends, I'm telling you that today we submit, today we honor, today we pay our taxes, today we're the best citizens this world has ever seen until it's time to fight. And dear friends, we won't fight like the world. We don't take up swords. We take up the word of God and we pray for those people. We keep doing what God has called us to do. We lay down our lives, we die. We go away in chains. We pay the price that the rest of the world would not dare pray. They would say, that's not winning, that's losing. We say, no, we are rightfully honoring the king who is above. This is the ultimate picture of winning is we lay down our lives and we die rather than to disobey him, rather than to dishonor him. That's the picture of what it means to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that we don't have to get caught up in all the politics of this world. It's okay to have opinions. Father, you know that I have lots and lots of political opinions. But that can't be our ultimate focus, and we thank you that you've set us free from that that we can trust you as the King of kings, a Lord of lords, the sovereign God of the universe, and that we don't need to stay up at night wondering about these things. Father, help us, help us to subject ourselves to earthly authorities, trusting that they have been placed there by you, whether they're good or whether they're bad, whether they've got it all completely upside down or not. Help us to submit. Help us to have the courage to submit. And then, Father, give us discernment when it is time to not submit any longer. Help us to see through these blurred lines when the time is to dig our heels in and honor you at the cost of our life. Father, help us not to be self-focused and self-centered. I am confident that even as I preach this sermon, Father, there are some in this room that are greatly disturbed. I didn't go far enough or I went too far. Father, help us to recognize that it's not about us. You didn't ask us to be president of this country. You didn't ask us to be king of the universe. You ask us to be loyal subjects of the kingdom of heaven. So, Father, we pray that you help us to do that. And as your subjects, as your people, we seek to sing songs of praise to you now. Glorify yourself. Receive our praise. For in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.